So I'm going to be talking about medical evangelism in the emergency room. How this happened. So my objectives show how we can do that in the emergency room or in a hospital setting. Because many of us, it's hard to do medical evangelism in a healthcare setting. Um, especially in the ER, having people come in and not, you have maybe an hour with the patient and they're usually really sick. Um, so how can we do that? Um, also, identify simple treatments that you can send people home with, because a lot of the time, um, doctors will go, okay, specifically with COVID, go home, and when you get worse, come back, and then we'll treat you. But by that time, it's too late. Like, what the hospital or modern medicine has to offer at that point in time is your CPAP or intubation and some dexamethasone and your your um, antibiotics and remdesivir. Thank you. I was like, it starts with an R. Um, so I will write on the back, and we're going to identify things that you can share with your patients, even if they're inpatient setting, what can you give them to go home with so that they don't have to come back to the hospital. That's the biggest thing. And then the last one is challenge you guys to seek a deeper walk with God, because if we understand if our relationship is close with Christ, then we are going to know who we can talk to and when we should talk to them, right? Okay, outline, we're going to skip over that. So who am I? I'm an ER nurse. Um, I've been an ER nurse for 13 years, but my background, that's echoing. Um, I grew up Adventist. I also grew up with natural remedies, home remedies in our home. Um, my parents used to tell me, okay, here's some garlic. You're sick? Eat it. Here's a, actually, here's a spoonful of peanut butter and a clove of garlic. Chew it up. I still to this day hate doing that, but I know that it works. <laughs> so I will wait till I'm really sick and then I'll do it. Okay, <laughs> I can do this. Um, I can remember five times of when I went to the hospital because my parents didn't take us to the hospital unless it's an absolute emergency. One, I actually had a hole in my heart when I was little and I remember probably about one, when I was one, maybe it was one to two years old, I remember taking the stickers off my chest and that was my first realization of a hospital or anything medical. The second time is I had whooping cough. I almost died from it. Um, third time, third time I was in the hospital is I was running across our corral for our horses. And I had told my brother, I bet you I can beat you. He was riding the bike on the outside of the corral and I was running straight across. Well, I forgot that we had um, hung up a, like a baling twine between the water trough and a post. Well, I ran into the baling twine and clotheslined myself, cut my throat open, and hit my head on a rock when I fell, hit my head on a rock and had it, I blacked out, I had a concussion. And when I came to, I ran inside and said, Mom, I think something's wrong. <laughs> Luckily, it wasn't deep enough to harm anything. And so we went to the hospital for that and got it taken care of. And the last time, oh no, fourth time I fell off my horse doing something my dad told me not to do. Um, most of the things were that I got in trouble for were because or still have lasting effects is because I disobeyed my dad. But I broke my arm, and I also got a concussion from that because I blacked out on that one. Um, and it was a compression fracture, and they had to reset it or reduce it and pull it down with weights. And the last time I remember going to the hospital was when I was in a car accident. And I decided to use my face as my airbag against the windshield and shattered the windshield. So not very many times in my first 15 years of life did I go to the hospital. Otherwise, it was hot and cold, hot foot baths, like garlic, whatever it was. My parents were like, nope, 
not happening. So, let's see. 13 years in the ER. How did, oh, how did I get to where I am? So, I went to become a birth assistant. I was a CNA ER tech for nine years before I finished nursing. And I wanted to do something more before I... At this point in time, I wanted to do nursing, but I wasn't there yet. I wasn't in school. And so I went, and through by God's grace, I met up with a former high school, um, I guess, a alumni that I had gone to school with. And she said, hey, what do you do now? Like, what are you doing? Where is your life taking you? And I told her I'd went to Souls West, and I was a CNA, and... Um, She's like, hey, you know, my mom, she's a birth center. They own a birth center, and she needs a, a birth assistant. But the vision for what they want is they want a birth assistant that is going to have Bible work experience so that we can give these women resources. And so they said, we want you to go to Weimar to the health program. And when you're done with that, come back and you can be a birth assistant and put on programs for these women. So I did that. God opened the doors, paid for the tuition, um, sold stuff that I said, if I need, if you want me to go, then you need to get rid of this stuff, cars and etc. cetera. Uh, and he did everything. And I went to Weimar. So then I finished that, went and did birth assisting at this facility and started my nursing journey and to, to become an ER nurse. Unbeknownst to me, I knew I wanted to be an ER nurse, but it wasn't, I wanted, I didn't realize that I wanted more of the patient connection. I want to see lives changed. And you see people patched up in the ER, but you don't see that spiritual life changed. And after five years, I've started to go, okay, God, how can I do this? How can this change? So, hydrotherapy. I had whooping cough in the 1980s. This is before they realized that it was a bacteria and that we could give antibiotics for this, okay? So my mom did fomentations to me on my chest to keep my airway open. Um, there were multiple doctors involved. We went to multiple hospitals, different doctors. Nobody could figure out what it was. They actually thought that I was being abused because I was coughing so bad, all the blood vessels in my face had broken. And so it looked like I had black and blue eyes and just somebody was beating me up. So they were going to turn my parents into CPS. So la one last time, my mom's like, let's try one more time. Let's take her to this hospital. Let's, one more. So we went, and there was a doctor there from the 1940s when the pandemic of whooping cough came through. And he said, and my parents had finally gotten me to sleep. And he said, does it sound like this? And my parents were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, there's nothing we can do for it. Keep doing the hydrotherapy. That's the only thing that's going to keep her lungs open. And see what happens. So my mom kept doing it. She nursed me through it. I almost died from it, but she got me through it, and it was only through hydrotherapy that this happened. So starting from when I was young, hydrotherapy was very relevant in my life, and I knew that it worked on stuff like COVID, per se. Then, fast forward to 2020, my dad gets COVID. Now, if anybody understands COVID in year, you're more likely to die from COVID if you have comorbidities like diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, strokes, heart attacks, that kind of stuff. My dad wasn't obese, but he has diabetes. He had high blood pressure. He had multiple history of multiple strokes. He had a history of multiple heart attacks. He was essentially a walking dead man. He called me. No. My brother called me and said, Britt, you need to get over here. Dad won't go to the hospital. <laughs> he hates hospitals. <laughs> and he's getting worse. And if we don't do something about it, he's going to die from this. So 
my I went and I at first told my brother do Russian steam baths if anybody knows what that is you sit in the bath and you essentially get your fever treatments is another word for it you get your temperature up to about 102 and you sit there for 20 minutes it's not terrible um, but it's not the most fun but you sit there for 20 minutes and then you go and you sweat it out so I told him to do that I told him to do hot and cold showers he started doing that then my my brother called and said we need you to come like dad is when he lays down he stops breathing if he lays on his back he has to sit up if he lays down he stops breathing I was like, okay. So I, my dad called me also and said, through coughing, he couldn't finish a sentence without coughing. He says, Britt, I need you to come. So I went over there and I, I did fomentations. I only did one set to hit. I did one set to his chest and then I turned him on his stomach and did another set of hydrotherapy to his back. And with the second set, he started coughing all this stuff out. And I said, Dad, I have to go back to work. Um, you can, I showed my brother how to do it. You can continue doing this at home. He, my brother didn't do it. But my dad said that was the turning point. When I did the hydrotherapy, he felt that something changed. And from that day, he continued to get better. I said, okay. And all this is leading up to, which I didn't know what was going to happen, but God was preparing me for what was coming. So my dad gets better. Treatment was uh, fomentations. Then I go to California. So in 2020, I wanted to go on a travel assignment to California. And God shut every single door, everyone. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I guess not. And looking back now, it was because God opened doors in my workplace to talk to people about the Bible. Because this pandemic was so crazy, and it was like, I feel like the world is coming, crashing down. Like, what's going on? And I was like, well, the Bible, you know, it talks about this. <laughs> and I was able to talk to them, and I've gotten Bible studies out of it. So I knew that God had opened doors then. Fast forward to 2021. I actually, the end of 2020, November, I think, I had been praying with a group that I meet on Tuesday nights with for United Prayer. And I was like, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? I just want to do your will. And during that prayer session, I don't know what happened, but I had said, okay, God, if you want me to travel, then you need to open the doors. Within five minutes, a text came through from a recruiter for an assignment down in California. Down here. I say down in California. I feel like I'm still up north. Um, that we would just go to any hospital. You didn't have, there was no set hospital. You didn't know what was going on. You just were sent. And I was like, okay. So I text my husband. I said, look at this. Should we do it? And he says, well, why don't you pray about it? I was thinking, well, I've already prayed about it. God already, this is God's answer to my prayers. He said, let's apply for it. If God wants you to do it, then he'll open the doors. I said, okay. So I applied for it. And within 24 hours, all my stuff was taken care of. But... I had two months, because it was only a six-week contract. I had January and February were full booked, because I work at two different hospitals, and I had it all booked out. And I said, God, if you want me to go, you're going to have to clear my schedule. And within a day, all but four shifts were gone. Like, I asked for them off, and usually you don't get them off. There's always shortages in the ER. And everybody was like, yeah, go ahead. So I knew. I was like, okay, I'm going. So I go down there, not knowing what to expect. First travel assignment, never been really to any other hospitals other than in the north. Not knowing what to expect. And I come to, uh, I come to 
Linwood near Compton. And they they were like, okay, you are going to be in the COVID unit in the ER. I'm like, great. But at, at this point in time, I wasn't really afraid of it because I knew I knew how big my God was. I knew what I had done, like what God had done through hydrotherapy for my dad, for me with whooping cough. Um, and I, I just I was like, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Where everybody else, there was a lot of fear in it. And so I started working in, in the ER, and I had a roommate that was telling me one night about this guy. He was 37 years old. He had COVID. He was supposed to go home on hospice because he was dying. And I was like, why are we going to let a 37-year-old die? Like, I don't understand. To me, coming from Spokane, like, the concept, I hadn't been down here when it was so bad that you were just a number, and if you were going to die, that's fine. Whatever. And I was like, I couldn't understand the picture that they were putting out. And so I was like, no, he needs hydrotherapy. We have to do hydrotherapy on this guy. So I told my roommate about it, about the history, which I just shared with you guys. And I said, I hope that tomorrow, if I'm in the COVID unit, that he's still there. Because if he's there, I'm doing hydrotherapy. So the next day, we got our, our assignments. And they said, you're in the COVID unit. I was like, yes, I'm in the COVID unit. So I went in, and uh, in this unit, there were seven beds. And they were usually all full. But we didn't have assignments, you just kind of helped out with everything. And I looked at my coworkers because there was usually one to, well, two to three nurses in there for those seven patients. And I said, I want that guy. I don't care. I will help with any other patients, but that's my patients and I don't, a patient and I don't want anybody else to touch him. And they said, okay, because they didn't want to have to deal with hospice and um, anything else that was going along with him. And I, so I had gotten the rest of the assignment, listened to the, listened to the stories, and a nurse walks by, and she was a relief nurse from, she happened to also be from Washington, and it, she was part, I wouldn't say the National Guard, but there's teams that come down and they help out with crisis. Uh, she was part of that team, and there was a paramedic and an EMT, and she said, hey, do you need any help? And I said, yes. And so I told her the story. I said, why are we letting this 37-year-old die in a hospital? And so she didn't understand either. So we got the paramedic and the EMT involved, and we did hydrotherapy on this guy. But so you understand what this guy looked like, um, he was on high-flow nasal cannula at 40 liters per minute. That's a lot. Even at that, his oxygen saturations were at 72. He did not look good at all. His respirations were 50 or more. This guy was gray. He had been, at, he had been looking like this for three days. And this is, I had gotten him. He came in on the 13th into the hospital, and I had gotten him on the 16th. So not a good clinical picture. And after I had shared all this, of course, the team, the gr little group of four of us, they were so excited. So I told them how to do high fomentations to his back. And we just, we took pitchers, hospital pitchers, and we boiled water in the microwave. And the EMT sat outside the doors because you had to, like, gown up and put full PPE on. And so... We had him sit outside, and he would boil the water and get the ice and everything, and then he would hand it to the paramedic, and the paramedic would take it to the nurse, and the nurse was, like, putting these fomentations on this guy's back because he couldn't lay down. He couldn't uh, either on his stomach or on his back. He was just tripoding. He was just sitting like this, breathing really fast. After one round, so one round of fomentations on his back was we switched from hot to cold between three and six times. I want to say she was doing on the upper end of six because we it, we started to see the effects of it, and so she started doing more. She got excited. 
So after the first round, after the first set of hydrotherapy, his oxygen saturation came up to 86% just by, by the hydrotherapy. And all of us, as, we, as she was doing it, we were all sitting there going, what? Are you kidding me? Because we've never seen it. Like, we hear about it all the time. Like, oh, it works, it works. Like, I've seen it in my own family. I've experienced it with whooping cough that it works. But how many of us have actually seen it physically with tangible evidence? work. And most of the people that grew up with it said, I, you know, I thought that it was just what my parents did. But then when I show them all this stuff, they're like, wow, this actually works. So then I, once I realized that, because I was, everybody's like, how did you do that? Well, I just was like, patient comfort. It's to help the patient breathe. It's like, let's just keep doing it. And everybody's like, okay, fine. There were no doctors in the COVID unit. They were all outside. Um, so I just, I was like, hey, it's my unit. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> so then I, the ICU doctor came and uh, was rounding on these patients, and I looked at her, and I said, hey, can we get BiPAP for this patient? So the patient did not want to be intubated. He said, if I get intubated, I die faster, and I don't see my kids, and he had littles. And I was, I said, I totally understand that. I wouldn't want it either. And looking back now, we know, if you look at the studies, like intubation is not helpful for COVID. It usually makes it worse. So I said, well, the studies are showing that BiPAP works really well because it keeps the PEEP and your, your alveoli open. So I advocated for BiPAP. And she's like, yeah, sure, he's going to die anyways. And I had said, we can send him home on hospice with CPAP. So why not start him here on BiPAP? And that's what she said. Yeah, whatever. He's going to die anyway. Which, for me, I was just like, Ugh. like, don't say that. But And it was, he was Spanish-speaking, but it was within earshot of him. And I was like, that's just not what you want to hear. After the bi we placed BiPAP on him, we did another round of hydrotherapy. And he, his oxygen sats came up to 92 to 94 after the second round with the BiPAP. Every successive round, we saw his oxygen keep climbing. So towards the end, we did six rounds or six sets in about an eight-hour period. Because I kept saying, if he goes home on hospice, I can't go to his house and do hydrotherapy. If he goes up to the floor... I can't go up to the floor and do hydrotherapy. This might be the only chance that I get to help this guy out. So we just kept going. And at first, hospice was supposed to be there at like one. And then, then it was moved to three and then to five. And I had talked to the family about one o'clock. And I, they're like, how is he doing? I said, well, his oxygen saturations are at 94% right now. And they say he's not coming home on hospice. That's what they said. So then, behind the scenes, unbeknownst to me, they were calling the chaplain, they were calling the social worker and saying, nope, we are not bringing him home. If his oxygen sats are right there, then he's staying there. Um, so throughout the day, we kept doing it. When we would do the hydrotherapy treatment, his oxygen sats would come up to 98 to 100%. When we'd take the treatment off, and it was just the BiPAP, he would go back to 92 to 94. So again, evidence that this hydrotherapy was working. His respirations came down to in the 30s, and then towards the end of the day, he was falling asleep, and they were 18 to 20, which is his normal. And you just saw that his rest, he wasn't breathing so hard, he wasn't working, and you saw that he, he felt like he was getting help. He wasn't as scared in his eyes. So I asked him, I said, is the water working? And he said, yes, I feel like I can breathe when I have a treatment on. I said, well, yeah, because you do, <laughs> you can breathe. <laughs> so with all this, my coworkers there, they were like, how? How do you know this? Like, Brittany, look what you're doing. And I said, I'm not doing anything. I said, God sent me to Lumar. God put me in a family 
to know natural remedies for hydrotherapy. God sent me to Weimar to learn it and be able to reproduce it and give it to somebody else. And God definitely sent me down here. I don't know who I was sent to reach, if it was the guy with for the hydrotherapy, or if it was the co-workers that I was talking to about God because of the hydrotherapy. But I was able to get out multiple books and talk to many people about God, which before they were laughing, you know, about God. You would hear jokes and which the ER is a very crude place, um, to say the least. And you would just, you get used to it, but you would hear these jokes. And it always just kind of grates on me to hear them. But after that, they were, they wanted to converse with me about it. But Ellen White talks about the entering wedge. Oh, yes. These are his lungs. This was the day that he came in. Not good. Have you, have you guys seen x-rays with clear lungs? Hopefully most of you have. So this is day one. These, each one is successive. We're getting worse, worse, and this is the day I got him. Now, this is the day we did hydrotherapy on him. I know the leads are backwards, but it was because he was trying to prone. They were trying to prone him put leads on so that it would capture. Uh, <laughs> that's the next day after the hydrotherapy. You can't, you can't tell me that it's not not working. The cool thing is, is that when they came down to put him on CPAP or BiPAP, I was talking to the nurse and I said, I want to see his x-rays tomorrow. And the respiratory therapist said, oh, you won't see any results from CPAP or BiPAP for two to four days later after they put him on him, on an x-ray. You'll see it on, like as he's breathing, but you won't see it on an x-ray for two to four days later. So when I looked at the nurse and the respiratory therapist had left, I was like, perfect, because then if they're changed tomorrow, then I know that it's not the CPAP or BiPAP, that it's going to be the hydrotherapy. So that was the next day. This is the following day, so even better. I'm like, oh, you can see the border of his heart. This is great. And then, again, I thank God because he started to get a little bit junkier. I don't know if you guys can see that, where we're clear kind of here, and then it gets a little bit more whitish in there. And then the CPAP kicks in. So I was like, God, you are so amazing to give me three days, and it starts to go down. So now we know hydrotherapy works for at least 48 hours of, of immunity or increased immunity or white blood cells. Um, so we have before and after. Go ahead. <laughs> you can't, I look at people nowadays when they're like, ah, it's just, I'm like, no, you can't, you can't make this up. This is absolutely God's hand working and showing what his natural remedies can do if we work with him or alongside him in our practices to produce this, right? So how does God, Ellen White talk about the entering wedge? At some point, you've probably heard all of these quotes, but until this guy, until I was down, in, down here, they didn't come, like I didn't really get them. Like I didn't understand them. And when I was down here and I saw what it did for my coworkers down here and how it opened up for them to want to talk to me about God, I understood what Ellen White was talking about. Councils on Health, page 535, she says, I can see in the Lord's provinces that the medical missionary work is to be the great entering wedge whereby the diseased soul may be reached. Do medical missionary work. Thus, you will gain access to the hearts of the people. You will find that relieving their physical suffering gives an opportunity to minister to their spiritual needs. 
I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines, but medical missionary work. At some point, guys, the only way that we'll be able to get into homes is by reaching them in their needs, in physical, in their health needs. And then, it, I feel like it will be kind of like in the old day uh, or in the dark ages where they would peddle. And then when they would find a house that was receptive, that they would give them a piece like they had sewn into their jackets of scripture. I feel like we will be at a point where that will be what we will be doing. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. But what is Christ's method alone? Like, what does it look like? What did he do? I feel like we see three things. We see teaching and preaching. We see healing. We see mingling. But what did he do most? He did all three. But first he mingled. He found out the needs of the people. Then he healed them and he met their needs. And then he preached. But it wasn't just him preaching to them. I feel like as he was mingling with them and healing them, it was also in his lifestyle. It was how he spoke with them. It was how he ministered to them that he preached to them. It wasn't, you need to do this. He did that. But it was people were drawn to him. They just wanted to be around him. They wanted to change because of who he was, not because he told them that they had to change. In the New Testament, it references Jesus healing 27 times and performing miracles 33 times. All of those are down below, every one that it references. That's in a three-year period of ministry. That's a lot in three years. And each one of those miracles, he met a need. It wasn't just a miracle just to do it and show his wisdom or his power. It was to reach their hearts. But how do we do that in our practice? Again, by our example. Just like Jesus, we have to live out what we learn in our health message, in our eight laws of health. We have to do that. And as we're mingling, because for me in the ER, I'm not going to be with patients very long. And I've always asked God, God, why? Why in the ER? Like, what? who am I going to reach? Because I thought when I went to the ER, oh, yes, I'm going to reach all these patients. And no. Over and over, God has brought me back again to, you are reaching your coworkers. You will reach some of the patients. But what about the coworkers that are sitting in that crude environment that have nothing, like, they're part of that. They don't know anything else. And more recently, with the guy with COVID here in California, when I saw that open up, more recently now things have opened up back at home with my coworkers because I'm starting to go, oh, no, I need to reach my coworkers. So now I'm starting to be like, hey, you want to do a Bible study? Hey, they see, they see how I live and how my lifestyle and my diet and exercise and everything that I do. And they know what I stand for, and they have started to go start to ask me questions. Um, and when I showed them this California stuff, they were like, "What?" So it's again, it's opened opened thing, many things up. So Ellen White says, "The prince, a physician who ministers in the homes of the people, wins a place in their confidence and affection, such as is granted to few others. Not even the minister of the gospel are committed possibilities so great." or an influence so far-reaching. That's amazing that even above ministers, we have a place in people's lives that goes exceeds everybody else, that we can reach them at another level that nobody else can reach them. But by what? How do we reach them? By physicians, by the physician's example. Again, the cause of reform calls, I wish this had a, 
does it have a pointer? Ah, the cause of reform calls for men and women whose life practice is an illustration. The world needs a practical demonstration of what the grace of God can do in restoring to human beings their lost kingship, giving them mastery of themselves. There is nothing that the world needs so much as a knowledge of the gospel's saving power revealed in Christ's life lives. What is our need? It's actually a relationship with Jesus Christ. How do we do this? God's purpose for us is that we shall ever move upward. The true medical missionary physician will be an increasingly skillful, skillful practitioner. The physician should gather to his soul the light of the word of God. He should make continual growth in grace. With him, religion is not to be merely one influence among, among others. It is to be an influence dominating all others. In no other place is a closer fellowship with Christ needed than in the work of the physician. The physician, equally with the gospel minister, is committed the highest trust ever committed to man. Whether he realizes it or not, every physician is entrusted with the cure of souls. This one really hit me because there's so many times that we get so busy in our practices that we forget what we are truly there for. In their work of dealing with disease and death, physicians too often, and not just physicians, nurses, dentists, like PTs, every healthcare professional, they get too often lose sight of the solemn realities of the future of life. In their earnest effort to avert the peril of the body, they forget the peril of the soul. The one to whom they are ministering may be losing his hold on life. Its last opportunities are slipping from his grasp. This soul, the physician, must meet again at the judgment seat of Christ. Often we miss the most precious blessing by neglecting to speak a word in season. If the golden opportunity is watched for, it will be lost. When I was listening to Calvin's talk this morning, at the end of it, he talked about that um, his friend having a dream and being at the judgment seat of God and God saying, I'm here to collect on, what did he say, the, the investment. And that guy hung his head because he had not, shared the gospel with, gospel with somebody else. And when I, when I reread this after Calvin said that, I was like, oh, how many times have we missed that golden opportunity? How many times have we been like, God, you know, this morning I'm so busy. I just don't need to, con like, I can't connect with you this morning. I'm just going to go to work. And because of that lack of connection daily with Christ, we don't hear that little small voice and we miss that opportunity and how many times are we going to like how many people are is God going to be like so are they here and we're going to be like oh, no they aren't because we missed it we have to keep in mind what is the true what what are we here for is it to work or is it to work for souls like is it to earn money or is it to work their souls, earn crowns, or earn jewels? Um, let the physician make his mind a storehouse of fresh thoughts. Let him study the word of God diligently, that he may be familiar with its promises. Never should be he neglect to direct the minds of his patients to Christ, the chief physician. No... The, physician only, the physician's only safety is under all circumstance to act from principle, strengthened and ennobled by a firmness of purpose found only in God. He is to stand in moral excellence of his character. Day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, he is to live as in the sight of unseen world. Righteousness has its root in godliness. No man can steadily maintain before this his fellow men a pure, forceful life unless his life is hid with Christ in God. We can't do it without Christ. 
again, like we cannot live each day without him. We cannot reach people without Christ. The more urgent his duties and the greater his responsibilities, that's talking about all of us in this room, the greater the medical personnel's need of divine power is. So if you feel like you're going into a hard day, you better be on your knees. Like I, Martin Luther said that he, if he was, if he realized that there was a lot to do in his day, he would spend more time in prayer. And I have seen it over and over in my life that if I give God that first time, everything falls into place and everything gets done. But if I don't, then I'm running on my own time and it usually doesn't get done. When man is in fellowship with God, the unswerving purpose which preserved Joseph and Daniel amidst the corruption of heathen courts will make his life of unsullied purity. I would love to be able to stand like Daniel in everything that's going on right now. Because not only did Daniel have health, and but eight laws of health, you could say, he had those and he stood for those and look where God took him. And, and the purpose, the drive that he had, because he was like, I cannot go against God. God honored him. And how many of us, if we, if we follow principle and we spend that time with God each morning, how, like where is God going to take us? What is he going to do with us? If he did that for Daniel, he can do greater with us, right? So, I said that I would show simple, simple remedies. But first, how do we know who to talk to? How do we know where to go? How do we know when to say something? How do we know when to give a Bible study? And how do we know when to hand out literature? Because really, you can do it to anybody, but are they? you can also shut somebody down very fast if you do it at the wrong time or to give them or the wrong thing or say the wrong word. You can it's very quickly. I've seen people shut down. But how do we know when is the right time? What is the right literature? What is the right thing to say? And it's only with a personal daily walk with Christ. I want to challenge you guys to take this, because if I was, if I didn't have a daily walk with Christ, I wouldn't have listened to going to California. I would have just done it for the money. And it, who knows? There were other contracts at that time that were way more money than what I was making in California. It was only by relationship with Jesus that I was able to talk to those coworkers and be able to pick up on that you could say, the golden opportunity of when to hand out a book and who to hand it to. So I want to challenge you guys to, if you aren't already doing it, to take an, even start out with a half an hour a day, but really that hour of time with God in prayer, in morning devotions. And it will take you through school, too, if any of you are in school, because he can get A's. If, you, if, if you're going to give him the time, he'll get you A's. If you, if if that's what you need. But home remedies you can do at home. Home remedies you can tell your patient to do. Practical things that they can do. So we're going to start off with hot and cold showers. So to, there are so many different ways to do it. Um, there's three minutes and 30 seconds and back and forth with that six times. There's You can do it 10 minutes and one minute. But what I found personally Five minutes, one minute, three times. Five minutes hot, one minute cold, three times. You go get in bed. Don't let your feet touch cold ground. Put socks on, step on a rug, do whatever, but don't set your feet on cold ground because it can cre create a reaction that you, it, it mitigates this, that reaction that you want. Um, you always end with cold with a minute. You go, you bundle up in bed. And go to sleep. You can do it in the morning, but you want at least 30 to 60 minutes after the shower. 
to just let the hydrotherapy do its job. Um, I did it this morning, and I did it last night. I tend to, if I'm stressed out, or if I'm stressed out, I have sugar and I have lack of sleep. It's always a disaster for a sinus infection for me. And um, this last week was very stressful for me. And I had lack of sleep and I ate because of the stress. I ate a whole bunch of sugar. <laughs> so on the way down here, I was like, oh no. So I've been doing this and eating garlic and it's perfectly fine. Yes. You can just do the neck down. Sometimes I, I include the head, but as long, so with this, it depends on what you're doing. So with hot and cold showers, what they do is actually increase the production of white uh, or of white and red blood cells in the bone marrow. So you actually increase your immunity. It makes you produce more. If you do focus treatments, then it draws those white and red blood cells to that specific area. And that is why on those x-rays, that guy, his only comorbidity was obesity. But with obesity, for every pound of fat that you gain, you gain five to seven miles of blood vessels. And with all that extra vasculature, all that extra fat, your body is already fighting so many other places and it's taxing the system. But when we did the hydrotherapy on his back, it drew all those fighters right there, which shows that his natural immunity can take care of COVID, but it didn't know where to go because of the obesity. So it drew it there. So if you do a focus, like you can, you can even, if you have a cut on your finger or something, or you sprain your ankle, you can put your finger in a, uh, in hot and cold back and forth in a, in a cup, or you can do, um, your foot or whatever part of your body. You can, you can do hot and cold back and forth. Um, but the, the showers, it just boosts everything. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, another one that you can do is I actually, usually you'll have to take a picture of this. Um, I actually pulled this from Agatha Thrash's book, Hydrotherapy and Home Remedies, um, which is the book that we use at Weimar for their class. You had a question? Okay. Um, my mom used to do this when we would get sick, but essentially, you sit on a chair, you wrap the patient because you want them to get hot. You want the fever to come up. Fever is good. It's a friend, not a foe. And so just you don't want it to like be 105. And you can, in certain places, you can, that's okay, but that's if you're being monitored at a hospital, or not at a hospital, at a sanitarium, because they won't want that at a hospital. They'll give you Tylenol. Um, but you want their fever to come up. So you wrap them up, you drape them, you make the sure, sure the, the chair isn't cold, and you put their feet in hot water. And you keep adding hot water. And you sit, they sit in that hot water with their feet for 20 minutes. So the feet are actually um, are connected to the upper respiratory system. So if you do a hot foot bath, it's going to clear out the sinuses or send that blood through the sinuses. So... You let them sit in that for 20 minutes, keep adding hot water. When that's done, you take their feet out and you pour ice cold water. Make sure you get the top and the bottom of the feet all over the feet. And then you wrap, you dry their feet off. And my mom would always carry me back to bed. If it's a bigger person, I wouldn't carry, carry them back to bed. But my mom would always pick me up because she didn't want my feet touching the ground. And she would carry me back to bed and put me in bed. And she would do that every night if she needed to. But another simple way to do things. You can even do it on yourself if you're sitting on the side of your tub. You just keep heating the water, keep adding water, and then when you're done with the hot water, you drain the tub and run your feet under the ice cold water. And then get out, make sure your feet, again, don't let your feet touch cold because it's, it's going to mitigate that reaction. And then just go get in bed and lay down for 
go for a little while, at least 30 minutes. One thing is you don't want to do this for specifically for hot foot baths on anybody that has restriction of blood in their feet, like they can't feel their feet, essentially. So diabetes, a lot of the time, um, depending on how far into the diabetes they have, if they have neuropathy, they can't always feel the temperature and you can, you're worried about scalding their feet or causing more so, like open wounds because then that's another problem, especially for a diabetic, that's a huge problem and then you'll have to go to amputating their foot and on and on. You could do hot foot baths for these people, but you would have to do it at a lower temperature. You like, Normally, it's like 108, 110 for your temperature in your water, and that can get real hot, and they can't tell you. So that's why these are, each one of these are contraindications. And obviously, don't do it when somebody's unconscious. <laughs> Just had to put that in there. Uh, you would be surprised at what people do. I've told people how to do hot and cold showers, and my coworker, which is a nurse, <clears throat> went and burnt her skin in the hot and cold shower. She couldn't do another hot and cold shower for three days. I said, you're a nurse. What part, <laughs> like, how did you not know this was burning your skin? But with all this, again, through it all, God has given us something that when we work with him, with natural remedies, we have stuff that works better, especially for COVID, and not just hydrotherapy, but better than what medical missionary work is doing, or not med Western medicine is doing, better than them. So I would challenge you to look into it, and if you haven't already learned it, learn it. We should all be aware of the diseases that are out there and how to treat them in a natural way so that we can reach those people, and Ellen White talked about that too. Let's have prayer. I think we're at that. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for today. Father, I thank you that you are an amazing God and that you have given us natural remedies, hydrotherapy, um, garlic, and so many other things, Father, that you have given us, a, us this stuff so that we could reach people where they're at where medicine, Western medicine doesn't reach, Father, we can come in alongside it and we can reach people in their needs and meet their needs, but also we can meet their spiritual needs, and that's ultimately what we want to do. Father, I just ask you that as we go from here that you would give us a desire to learn your natural remedies so that we can work alongside and co-labor with you, Father. I just thank you for this conference that we want to work while it is day and that you are coming soon. I just thank you for the time and opportunity to speak and I just thank you for Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.